Are you kidding? We don't have enough time for an intro. Have you seen how long this episode's gonna be? Roll the tape. And welcome to Don't Watch This Film, the podcast where we watch some of the worst horror movies in history, but not this week, so that you don't have to. Uh, my name is W. Adam Clark. My name is I Am So Pleasantly Surprised, and I'm ashamed of how pleasantly surprised I am, and I don't know how to feel about myself anymore. I know, right? What a <laughs> shocker this movie oh. was. I owe this movie an apology, because I was not expecting this. We'll go into all of that in a minute. The movie that we are discussing. (laughs) Okay, let me break that down first. The first movie we're discussing. The movie that the podcast is titled after is House of Wax 2005. Now, to discuss House of Wax 2005, we need to discuss the movie that this is tangentially a remake of, which is House of Wax 1953, the Vincent Price masterpiece, which is in itself a remake of Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933. However, this movie is also tangentially a remake of The Tourist Trap from 1979. Also, arguably, just barely, just under the surface, this movie is a remake of a film that it references in the film heavily called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. And the entire ball of wax got started with a book called The Wax Works by Charles S. Belden. This movie, like an onion and ogres before it had, or after it, has layers. Yeah. Anybody confused yet? Anybody ready for this dissertation? Because there's no way we're going to be able to get through this in anything less than hours of discussing this movie. Holy shit. There is so, so much to unpack in this movie. <laughs> Tia, why don't you start us off? Okay, uh, so which of the six movies am I... Sum- oh, okay. How's so Wack 2005? Um, okay, I'm summarizing this one. <laughs> and by the way... Or do we start, you- do we start with House of Wax? 1953. Oh, we'll get there. Well, let's do the let's do the one that the podcast is named for first, and then we will backtrack because we'll get to all of them eventually. <laughs> I, I literally like do, after we do 2005. Do we talk about House of Wax 53, or do we talk about Tourist Trap first to then talk about House of Wax? Or now that we talk about House of Wax, do we talk about whatever happened to Baby Jane to then talk about Tourist Trap to then talk about House of Wax to then talk about the, the movie that we're talking about? Fuck. By the way, I would just like to mention that, and I don't know if Adam actually caught this, the House of Wax, the 1953 Vincent Price vehicle, which is very, very good, is in itself a remake of Warner Brothers' film, The Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yes. Also based on the wax works. Yes. We... 1933. Strap in, people. You're going to be here a while. <laughs> yeah. This is... <sighs> so... My synopsis is currently of House of Wax 2005. I promise you we will get to all of the other Mm -hmm. movies that were mentioned because we don't have a choice because... We'll start there. I wish we could do (laughs) timestamps. If this ever makes it to YouTube anywhere, this will be heavily annotated and timestamped. 
because <laughs> this one's going to have chapters. All right. House uh, of Wax, 2005. What happens? So a group of friends are traveling from Florida to Louisiana to watch a football game. Apparently one of the biggest, but they can't say which one is the biggest because apparently rights are involved somewhere down the line. Yeah. If it's, if it's a college team or a NFL team, you literally can't even mention the name of the team in a movie ad or TV show without paying the NCAA and or the NFL respectively. Ironically, <laughs> if it was a if it was an NCAA team and they didn't mention what sport, they'd be able to mention the name of the team because in most cases that's a mascot emblem of the university. So it would be mm -hmm. a, a property of the university and thus not protected and within public domain. But the team names, when they're specifically referenced as team names, are protected. So copyright stuff. It is copyright stuff. And by the way, this is something I figured out. We're not even getting through the synopsis before we bring out references. I'm just going to no, let not. you know that ahead I, of time. I, like I said, we weren't even getting started before we had to bring out references. This is, this is going to be nuts. But if the biggest game is the biggest game that you think of when you think of NFL, the actual 2005 biggest game actually took place in Jacksonville, Florida. They specifically referenced in the movie being from or around Gainesville, Florida, which is only an hour and a half away. Right. Also, the movie came out January 1st, which means the release date for the movie would have been uh, like two weeks before the Super Bowl. So, yeah, it fits. Either way. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So, I, one sentence. One sentence one and we're already sentence. Oh. We're, oh, we're, we're done. We're, we're done. <laughs> uh, so the night before they go to this biggest game, the group is camping in a field when a truck drives by and stares them down with the headlights on. Before leaving, when Nick, one of the guys there and the brother of main protagonist, Carly, throws a beer bottle and shatters the right headlight, evidently scaring him off as you do. Yes. He is playing, the, the, the brother is playing the asshole trope. You must have one in horror movies. Yeah. As we have discussed, there are, a, there are certain personality archetype tropes for survivors slash protagonists in this style of movie, and he is definitely playing the asshole trope. Ironically, the asshole trope is not usually a final guy or final girl, but uh, in this case, it pulls through. And also is usually the one you want to see die, and then... Apparently, Hollywood has figured out that that's a trope, so they subvert it by making them eventually one of the ones that you want to see live. Yeah, they, they, sub, they subverted that trope specifically in this movie, and I, this movie isn't deconstructionism in any way, so they weren't trying to deconstruct the trope. I almost want to give them the credit, but I'm afraid to because I'm going to give them so much credit for other things, I almost want to give them the credit that that's a social commentary statement. The guy that you think is the asshole, you're just thinking is an asshole because he's a naughty millennial guy, and not be, you're, you're judging him more on his age and identity more than his actual personality. And... He's not actually the asshole. They do make it clear in a throwaway line when he is revealed, Nick, the character, is revealed to have taken the fall for one of the other friends in the group having stolen and wrecked a truck. 
Right. You think the entire time you're watching this that Nick was the one who did it, and that's what he wants everyone to think, but he actually was being self-sacrificing. It's 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 intentional. You can give them marks for that. Yeah. Like, they, <laughs> they, they, the guy that's the asshole trope is the guy that kept his buddy out of jail by taking the rap for him. Like, that's not the asshole trope. So they've already kind of hinted that he's not he looks like the asshole trope but maybe he's not the asshole trope and maybe he is the white knight trope just you know under a dark hood and thus the the white knight trope often final guy material so it kind of all works like and fuck we're not even talking about the goddamn movie yet Oh, this movie. I would make a Dark Knight joke, but we need to get through the next seven paragraphs, maybe in a timely fashion. Oh, uh, no, nah. The next morning, Wade, who is again main protagonist Carly's boyfriend, discovers the fan belt in his really nice Dodge Charger. It's broken. It looks like it was cut, but he says it's broken. And while Carly and her friend are off using the restroom, they discover the source of a bad smell from the night before. When Carly ends up falling into a pit of rotting animal carcasses. A local with a truck named Luster offers to drive Carly and Wade into the nearest town to get a fan belt while the others head to the game. The town called Ambrose, not sure if that's a reference to anything. I don't, I don't think so. Keep going. I'll take a look. Okay. The town called Ambrose is practically deserted and Wade and Carly only find someone in the church, apparently during a funeral. Bo, the man there, also runs the gas station and offers to sell them a fan belt after the funeral was concluded. While waiting, Wade discovers the place from a billboard the night before, Trudy's House of Wax, which the entire building is constructed from and features incredibly lifelike wax everything, from the people to the furniture to the floors and walls and decor. Everything pretty much except for the windows is made out of wax. Bo returns from the funeral and guides Wade and Carly to his house to get a proper-sized fan belt when a masked figure cripples Wade while he's looking around the house and knocks him out. While waiting outside, Carly finds the truck Bo led them to was actually the one from the night before, and after a struggle, is taken by Bo to a chamber below the gas station, where Carly is bound to a chair and has her lips glued shut. During this, the masked figure covers Wade's body in molten wax. It's very apparent he's still alive. That scene is extremely creepy. We'd just like to point that out. The others at the campsite realize they won't make the game in time and said Nick, Carly's brother, and their friend Dalton to go look for Carly and Wade. Nick finds Bo outside the gas station after having restrained her, and Carly manages to get the glue off of her lips to get Nick's attention. He overpowers Bo, goes into the gas station to find Carly. Dalton, meanwhile, is in the wax museum and finds Wade at the piano, not dead, but covered in a wax coating. Dalton picks at it, to try to get him free, finding that his skin is actually coming off under the wax before the masked figure returns and slashes Wade's face, killing Wade pretty much instantly, and after a quick chase, cuts Dalton's head off. Carly and Nick get away from Bo and realize the entire town has been replaced by wax figures that are human visitors that have been killed and covered with wax to make the town appear populated. The masked figure takes off to the campsite, where the last two of the group are still waiting and kills them both. After a little bit more of Cat and Mouse, Nick and Carly are chased into the House of Wax Museum after Nick unintentionally starts a huge fire by pouring molten wax into the grates on the lower floor. The entire wax museum starts burning and melting, while Nick and Carly finally manage to kill Bo after a few fights and some good shots with a baseball bat. 
the masked figure, who at this point is revealed to be Bo's brother Vincent and has been manipulated by Bo all of his life, finally gets stabbed through the back and falls through the melting floor. As the museum starts falling apart around them, Carly and Nick manage to claw through a melting wall and get out right before the entire thing collapses. The next morning, the police arrive, having seen the smoke from the museum, and Carly and Nick are taken to a nearby hospital to get treated for injuries. Lester, the local from the carcass pit, is seen waving goodbye to them from the back of his truck while a police radio report is advising that the parents of the brothers, Bo and Vincent, who had done some extremely shady things that led to the events of the film, had a third son. Sounds simple enough. Sound like a typical odd slasher film? It's not! Sound mundane and like something you could skip over? That's what I thought too. I was wrong. All right. So town of and town name of Ambrose have any meaning that you could find? Not that I could find specifically. So. Gotcha. Okay. Maybe I, that's something else. Maybe that was a reference to. I mean, it could even just be referencing a name of somebody that influenced something somewhere along the line. Like, there's a million things that it could be that it's just not this. But, oh, man, this is just all over the fucking place. (laughs) So, let's talk about numbers before we get into the massive web that is going to lead us down so many rabbit holes we can't even count. I, yeah, like, this is... (laughs) This is the most cogent this episode will be, because once we get past the synopsis and the numbers part, it is all over the shop This is going to be a rabbit hole, and it's (laughs) going to just go everywhere uh all right so house of wax 2005 rating is r genre is horror and if for a subgenre, i would put it kind of 50 50 between slasher and psychological thriller the director and uh i'm probably going to butcher this name jean collet sarah is best known for unknown in 2011 Orphan in 2009, and The Shallows in 2016. The movie was produced by Joel Silver, Robert Zemeckis, and Susan Downey. If you don't know who any of those are, I don't know why you're watching a movie podcast because Joel Silver, Robert Zemeckis, and Susan Downey have been responsible for something like 150 trillion movies at this point. Um, The release date for this was January 1st, 2009. It had a budget of $40 million. That was not the intended budget, but things went wrong and that's what the movie wound up costing. The box office gross was $32 million. The runtime was an hour and 47 minutes, slightly on the longer end. But as I've said before, this movie used all of that runtime. Like, I don't know that you really could have shortened this one at all. No, and, and no had that was a lot. Yeah, like this is... <laughs> That's about as tight as this story could get, and it used all of those minutes, so it's fine. Rotten Tomatoes has a critical score of 26% and an audience score of 42%. IMDb gives it an aggregate score of 5.4. This movie stars Alicia Cuthbert as Carly, who you would best know probably as Kim Bauer on the series 24. She also starred in The Quiet in 2005 and The Girl Next Door in 2004, and the TV series is... The Ranch, and Happy Endings. Chad Michael Murray plays Nick, who was Lucas Scott on One Tree Hill. Jared Padalecki plays Wade. Um, You would best know Jared Padalecki as Sam Winchester from the Sam Winchester series. 
now. It's from Supernatural. Uh, he was also, believe it or not, Clay Miller in the Friday the 13th remake that also occurred in 2009. So, fun little nod there to a movie that we're not going to talk about this month. There's only but so it's many weeks in a month. month. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's only so many weeks in a month. Um, Brian Van Holt plays Bo. Uh, he was Strucker in Black Hawk Down in 2001, Dunbar in Basic 2003, and Michael Boxer in SWAT 2003. Robert Richard plays Blake. He was Julian on the TV series Empire. He was Mason in Veronica Mars. He was Arnaz Ballard on One on One. He was Derek on Meet the Browns. So he's been working steady. And then there's this little-known actress who you've probably never heard of named Pamela Hilton. <sighs> And that's... Was that a joke, or did you intentionally do that? Both. Okay. It was a joke, and I intentionally did that. Okay. All right. Um, so that's this movie. Now, I don't want to go too much into the numbers of House of Wax 1953, because it's not terribly cogent to this film, unlike the last reboot that we did, for a number of reasons. However, the 1953 version, Vincent Price as uh, Henry Jared, Frank Lovejoy as Detective Tom Brennan, Phyllis Kirk as Sue Allen, Carolyn Jones, who if you don't remember that name, you probably remember Morticia Adams from the TV series as Kathy Gray. And in a little-known role, Vincent Price's assistant, Igor, is played by someone who in the credits is credited under his under his real name, Charles Buczynski, because it was his first on-screen role. However, most people would better know him as Charles Bronson. So You, you, you know the guy. You, yeah. You know him. Yeah, the Death Wish series, lots of other stuff. So, yeah. So, Charles Bronson played a deaf mute in the House of Wax. And not a lot of people know that. Hell, I didn't know it until I looked the movie up, to be totally honest. So we've covered that. Now, we can't even go into what went wrong or what went right with this movie first. We, we've got to fall down the rabbit hole. So Fuck, we need we have to, to fall down need, the rabbit hole. We must lay out how we even got to this movie to say what went wrong or what went right. Okay. Getting to this movie is going to take a hot second. So, yeah. yeah. Bear with us. Um... <laughs> Do we want to go in reverse chronological order or in correct chronological order? Okay, so this is the film we're primarily going to be talking about, I hope to God. So let's start let's start from the short story and go in chronological order with the Wax series okay. and then talk about the tangential films leading up to That'll House actually of... be a correct chronological order, so that's perfect. Okay. Okay. So, oh, fuck. All right. So there was a short story called The Waxwork, which unpublished was the inspiration for a play called The Wax Museum. In 1933, Henry Blank, who was the producer for the movie that would come out called The Wax Museum, tried to get the rights to do a film version of the play. Mm -hmm. was unable to get the rights to the script for the play. So instead, got the rights to the waxwork mm -hmm. and made a movie based on the waxworks called The Wax Museum, 
not based on the play, The Wax Museum, which of course started a lawsuit then. However, this was one of those really early cinematic <clears throat> notorieties. Yeah. This is like 1933. We're going way back for right. this one. But the notoriety of this movie, I mean, you know, it had Glenda Farwell, Faye Ray. I don't expect you to know those names, but trust me, in the 30s, they were huge. Added to the idea that this is a, a like a big legal wrangle between two studio houses. Like this movie drew a lot of attention. All right. Comes out really scary. It was one of the last two films that were made in two-color Technicolor, so it was kind of like the last vestige of a dying art in a lot of different ways. And it rang so true in a lot of people's heads, and it stuck in the zeitgeist of horror that in 1953... 20 years later. Exactly 20 years later, House of Wax, now under the name House of Wax, gets greenlit and produced. And this is the Vincent Price movie directed by um, Andre de Toth. It was one of the first movies post Hayes Code. Uh, it was the first big budget, uh, the, the first, yeah, the, the, the first big budget speculative fiction film mm -hmm. to be done in what was called Natural Vision Three Dimension, which was a precursor to the modern Technicolor format. Mm -hmm. So. A ton of money was spent on this film. A ton, like they got some of the biggest actors. They you, made huge elaborate set pieces. Th this was a very bloated project. Um, and actually, this is something that he would actually credit with potentially, because Vincent Price had been an actor up until this point, done a lot of black and white films. One we saw recently was called Shock, which is amazing. You should go see it. There's a ton of his work available for free on Amazon Prime. I love this actor. I'm biased. I don't care. But this is actually where his career was kind of stalling after he got his foot in the door with horror. And he actually credits this as basically launching him back into the spotlight. So this got Vincent Price to become Vincent Price. Yes. The, this movie got Vincent Price to become Vincent Price. It also got Carolyn Jones to become Carolyn Jones. Going into this movie, the big names that the audience would recognize were Frank Lovejoy and Phyllis Kirk. Five mm. years after this movie, the big names that everyone would recognize would be Vincent Price and Carolyn Jones. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this, this was a very important film, not only for horror, but just studio production in general. Like, this changed a lot of things. And this was the movie that in many ways put horror films, big-budget horror films, on the map again. Mm -hmm. And this movie, the momentum from this movie would keep big-budget horror movies in studios and in theaters pretty much until the 70s. And then you would have a bit of a dry spell, and in the late 70s, the low-budget slasher flicks would blow up and, you know, rekindle that momentum. But House of Wax is where it pretty much it all started. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to look at this movie and the reboot of this movie, because it is so quintessentially important to horror cinema. It's a movie that, oh, yeah, God, yeah. Every, every horror cinema file really should have in their collection. It, it, it is a full-color movie from 1953. It has all of the pomp and spectacle of a 50s, like, Ben-Hur-esque blockbuster film. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. But it's a horror movie. Also, again, so one of the things that Vincent Price was really good with, he is at some, in some way both the antagonist and protagonist of this story. Mm -hmm. Like, he's the character you want to root for, 
but you also recognize that he's an evil killer. Which really okay, so I feel like before we go on, this is the only other one I'm going to do because to synopsize all six pieces that make the House of Wax 2005 go together would take way longer than I think either of us have. Right. But I am going to give a very, very brief synopsis of the Vincent Price movie because it is it is one of the building blocks for House of Wax 2005, but it's so different. I feel like we should probably give them a little bit of, okay, this is how the story was in the 1953 version, and this is how the story was in the 2005 version. Seems reasonable. Go for it. I'm going to have such a hard time editing all of this. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> the problem is, is I'm not even going to know what to cut out. None of this is going to be bad material. This is all pertinent and cogent. And we're not doing the rambling part. But there's just so much to talk about. There really is. Okay. And in case, by the way, in case you were thinking that the threads together are just a name only and surface level, Igor in the Vincent Price film is Vincent Price's character's Henry Jared's assistant. Igor was the name of the primary Pro slash antagonist in the mystery of the wax museum that this was that this based itself off of. So right. we are talking very deep running through lines, which is why so, we're going into so much. So in House of Wax, the name of the uh, the the name of the killer from the source material that it was based on is used as the name of the younger apprentice student sculptor in the remade film. Everyone keep that in mind. We'll get back to that in probably a half hour. So, Henry Jared, Vincent Price's character, is a wax figure sculptor with a wax museum of his own in early 1900s New York City. He does a lot of figures from history, most specifically his beloved figure of Marie Antoinette. He considers it his centerpiece. His business partner by the name of Matthew Burke wants out of their partnership because Jared is refusing to add a lot more sensationalist exhibits. Jared won't put in horror. He won't put in thrilling types of... He basically won't do anything that would be considered titillating to the audience. He refuses to utilize gory spectacle, which is a staple of waxworks because since it's sculpting you can do things you couldn't do to regular people so it was it, it was a common trope uh, within waxworks to have dismembered mutilated people etc because you could make it look real and lifelike and actually pretty terrifying, but you n- no actual actors were harmed in the making of this statue. Right. So his business partner, Burke, knows that he's likely going to be bought out of his partnership after Jared gives a private tour to a local art critic. After some financing goes through in Egypt, that part's not important. What is important is that Burke basically puts the idea, not puts the idea, he suggests to Jared, we could get so much insurance money, every single one of your art pieces here are insured for a crap ton. Let's just say there was an accident, burn this thing to the ground, make out like bandits, and you'll have enough to build your own museum with whatever you want in it from absolute scratch. Jared, being an artist, and I kind of agree with him, refuses and says, these are practically my family i've crafted every one of them with love go fuck yourself i'm not burning down my own work burke wanting that insurance payout sets a fire to the museum anyways which jared is caught in and subsequently believed to have burned to death as the entire museum just dries soon after this 
a bunch of people that are very, very close to Burke especially start being killed off or go missing in pretty gruesome manners. Jared is revealed to have survived, although he's now wheelchair-bound, and decides, you know what? Burke might have had a point. I'm going to open up a new museum. I'm going to open up with some sensationalist exhibits. I'm going to put the guillotine on display. I'm going to show what really happened to Marie Antoinette. His demeanor quickly goes in classic Vincent Price fashion, from charming, moral, with a principle at hand, to charming, creepy, there's something else going on, and I don't want to be in the same room with that guy, as only Vincent Price can do. Again, I'm biased. Again, I don't care. As people start realizing what's happening, a friend of Burke's fiance, whose name is Sue, attends the opening of the Wax Museum and starts noticing that in these more ghastly, explicit exhibits, a lot of the people start looking like people that she recognizes, in particular, the Joan of Arc figure. Jared claims that he used photographs, there's nothing untowards going on, and of course he's so charming that Sue kind of forgets about the whole thing until she gets a second look and decides to check it out a little more closely. Jared catches her, Again, says it's all good. I understand why you're concerned. Don't worry about it. I made this for you. And reveals her head made out of wax in a box. (laughs) Which is one of the creepiest parts of the whole damn movie. Sue continues digging. The police do eventually get involved. And eventually, Jared, with Igor's help, captures Sue, incapacitate her, and essentially prepare to encase her, similar to the 20... 2005 version, prepared to encase her in wax to make her one of the sculptures, because the sculptures at this point are, in fact, dead people coated in wax. Jared has been this mysterious mass killer that no one was able to identify per se, because everyone thought Jared was dead, and now that they see he's in a wheelchair, everyone thought there's no way that he could have done all these killings. He's in a wheelchair. Disguising himself, as he does with wax to mask his face that has been horribly disfigured as we see in several shots that's what the killer looks like he is brought in after one of his lackeys eventually rats on him because that's just what happens igor gets arrested jared's chased through his museum and eventually falls into a boiling vat of wax which i'm Pretty damn sure will kill you. I've never done so myself. I'm just going to go on, you know, It'll what I know kill about. you or turn you into the Joker, I think. So it should be okay. <sighs> so right before Sue can be turned into a sculpture herself, she is set free. That is House of Wax 1953. Some resemblances, but the storyline is extremely different from the 2005 version. Also, it's important for us to remember that the reason why you get these whole wax figures made out of corpses thing as a storyline and a trope is let's just say ripped from the headlines because one a long-standing theory that was actually proven factual in 1850 after um uh anna tussaud died was that some of the sculptures that anna tussaud had done of historical personnel such as uh princess de lamballe and marie antoinette and robespierre were actually sculpted 
using human remains. So there is... It's not without precedent. It's not without precedent or merit for this to be a concept or a fear. And again, remember that horror movies often build upon current zeitgeists. So when this was a thing, when wax work, wax museums were a thing, that was something that everybody kind of knew. Well, that might be a dead body in there. That's why it looks so lifelike. I mean, it was the conspiracy theory of the of the 1920s, okay? Just to let you know how deep that actually goes, similar things were actually mentioned about Walt Disney's attraction Pirates of the Caribbean because there are numerous pots, spots in that exhibit that showcase skeletons that yeah. for a long time were rumored to be human remains. So this is not using bodies for art has been a thing pretty much since art has existed. And also not for these movies, but as just another point of reference, horror movies from the sixties and seventies, there was a time when it was cheaper to import corpses from India than have plaster casted bones made. So like in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2, The Exorcist, a whole bunch of other movies, a lot of the corpses you see are real and they're human fucking bodies and the actors didn't know it and were creeped the fuck out 10, 12 years later when they found out and it became this whole big thing because set developers and, uh, and filmmakers weren't telling their cast members that they were working with actual human bones. So, yeah. So, it's a thing that has always been in the horror space and in the entertainment space. And mm. every once in a while comes back around, gets revisited. So, I mean, there, there, is, there, there is reference and precedent for it all over the place in here. Mm -hmm. So, that is, that is the beginning from the very short story to the two films leading up to 2005. However, we can't jump to 2005 yet because there are at least two other movies that this well, film pulls from that we got to talk about. Before we even get into that, I just want to bring up the fact that Andrew, uh, Andre de Toth is considered to have done one of the, uh, in, without question, one of the top five 3D films of all time. And arguably is considered by many to still be the best 3D film of all time. May I take a moment to mention... Andre the Toth was missing one eye and had no depth perception. Modern, modern uh, filmmakers have no excuse. <laughs> so he utilized a feature that he had no way to personally appreciate to this degree. Okay. Also, please remember later that the creative artur of the House of Wax was missing an eye. Now we're going to move on. Ooh, ooh. Okay, hang on. I just, I just connected some dots. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Don't mm. worry. There's more dots coming. <laughs> so now we've gotten through the House of Wax, 1953. The next thing that we're going to bring up is there is a movie from 1962 that is referenced repeatedly in the 2005 remake. They go as too far as to literally show it in a theater. So it's like, it's very overt. This is a very giant, you can't miss this. This is here for a reason. Pay attention to what you're seeing. Okay. So whatever happened to baby Jane, 1962. Mm -hmm. It's a psychological horror film directed by Robert Aldrich. It stars Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Probably will know both of those names. 
To give a very short synopsis, it's the tale of two sisters, Blanche and Jane. Jane was a prodigious childhood actor, or childhood actress, Mm -hmm. who was in a number of different movies and a number of different things. Her sister, not quite as successful. Her older sister, Blanche, not quite as successful, but helped handle some of um, her affairs when they were filming, stuff like that. Blanche attempts to maintain a semblance of an acting career for Jane. As she gets older, her style of performing falls out of fashion, much like many child actors and actresses of all times. She becomes an alcoholic. She becomes difficult to handle. And eventually, Blanche becomes the more famous of the two and kind of starts to take over the acting career and then just kind of cease to her sisters. I apologize if you guys hear thunder in the background. We are having a thunderstorm, and it's going to take forever to film this, and I'm not going to do this a second time. So, however, Blanche's career is cut short when she's paralyzed from the waist down in a car accident, which is unofficially blamed on Jane, and now their roles reverse again, and then it becomes a massive whodunit. And but so basically, the premise of this is it's a psychological thriller that centers around a pair of siblings who are entertainers, where one of the two of them is disfigured, and they try to disguise their various mental and physical disabilities from the public and as people find out about it they wind up dead not to mention that there is some at least in the whatever happened to baby jane scenario there is a little bit of unspoken speculation that jane the sister is responsible for the car accident that messed blanche up right so there's a whole lot of going ons in the background there there's a ton of stuff like there's and a lot of those symbolisms are going to pull through in the 2005 version okay just know that there's two siblings one is physically having issues the other used to have the spotlight doesn't necessarily have the spotlight as much anymore and resentment is a thing that's the big remember those factors because we're gonna see them again (laughs) right so so there's that okay we're now out of the 60s let's go up to the 70s because this is reboot month And this movie is a reboot of The Tourist Trap from 1979. It's not a reboot of House of Wax. I mean, it is. But it's also a reboot of The Tourist Trap. So now I'm going to really quickly tell you very, very shortly about a supernatural slasher film called The Tourist Trap. So a bunch of friends are driving through the desert in two cars. One of the cars has a vehicular issue. They go to a gas station nearby to try to get the vehicular issue, in this case, a, a flat tire fixed, and are surprised to find mannequins standing around in the gas station and mannequins in a bunch of other places in the town. And they start wandering around. And as they're wandering around, they find the psycho killer of the movie, who is a telekinetic, and he manipulates the statues in town causing the statues to attack people, generally stabbing them or falling on them with hard objects or stuff like that, and killing people and then turning those people into mannequins in the town because the entire town is his psychological plaything because no one is alive in the town and everyone that you see are mannequins created by the killer designed to try to make the town look more like a real thing to any random passerbys that don't realize what's going on. Does this sound familiar yet? 
So. <laughs> By the way, I would like to mention that uncredited, one of the mannequins that is seen in this particular movie is a one Miss Linnea Quigley, who is one of horror's legends. Yes. Just saying that. So now we have a movie where a bunch of kids get forced off the road and go into a fake town to get attacked by a psychotic killer that set up the entire town to look like the town, to, to look like the, the way he wants a town to look. Okay, so <clears throat> having now discussed five movies, we're ready to discuss Wrong Turn from 2003, because this movie is also an unofficial reboot of Wrong Turn. Allow me to explain what happens in Wrong Turn. In Wrong Turn, a number of teenagers, young adults, including one named Carly, who winds up being the final girl of the film, if I remember correctly, wind up getting detoured off of a main road, which have, a, have an accident which causes vehicular trouble, and they have to go into this small town where they find a family of psychotic hillbilly murderers. Okay? I told you it was going to get quicker. The important thing is, you have now heard the synopses of the five fucking movies that make House of Wax 2005. We warned you ahead of time. We're so, just, just saying. We you gave you fair. So now, everything that my beautiful and amazing co-host said in her synopsis of 2005, you got piecemeal in six other movies. They were all funneled together to make a concept that then became... House of Wax 2005. And we still, still, still can't even go to what went right or wrong because now we have to talk about the production team. So normally I only go as far as, you know, director, producer, actors when we do the numbers. However, this is one where we need to go into a little bit more depth because holy shit. <laughs> So I will, you've been talking for a while. I will, I will take this one if you'd like to. Please, I need a drink. Um, okay, so music is one of the biggest things that I notice in film. I'm a huge music lover. It matters a lot to me. So that's one of the first things that I notice. The music for this film was, and by this film, I mean House of Wax 2005. That's what we're probably going to be talking about from here on out. If we need to reference any of the God, how many films and projects that we've referenced that made this movie, we will. But I'm talking about 2005, specifically from this point forward. Yeah, I think from this point on, with the exception of referencing things because they were shown in this movie, we're now finally 50 minutes into this review just talking about this movie. We can't even say what went right or went wrong yet. We were, nope. Oh, God. I told you two and so, a half hours. I, I'm going to be pretty close to right. So the music composer and music editor for this was one John Ottman out of California. He did specifically two films in 1998, Halloween H20, 20 years later, which we may or may not be talking about in the next reboot review we do. <clears throat> And a film called Apt Pupil, which is a very, very well-done psychological thriller starring, I believe, Sir Ian McKellen, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. He went on to do films like Urban Legends, Lake Placid, Eight-Legged Freaks, which will come up at some point, I'm sure. But specifically, a film in 2003 called Gothica, which I don't think was well-received, but is still within that psychological horror genre. I believe it starred Halle Berry. Correct. What we're really getting to is two projects he did before and after House of Wax. After House of Wax, he did, with the same director of House of Wax, 
I'm gonna butcher this. I'm so sorry. Jamais Colet Sarah. It's okay. I butchered it too. We're fine. Okay. Called Orphan, which is a very skin crawling psychological thriller about a family who adopts a very strange little girl. This is probably gonna go on the list if it's not already. It's very good. But same director did the same music. And then I looked at the cinematographer. I can keep going if you want me to, by the way. <laughs> I, you can do the cinematographer, then I'll hit the writer, and then we'll try to actually get back to the podcast. Okay. The cinematographer was one Stephen Winden. Now, this movie, The House of Wax 2005, was one where he's still shown as kind of finding himself as a cinematographer. He shows some skill with the lenses, not necessarily as much as he would later, because this guy would go on to do Fast Five, Fast and Furious 6, Furious 7, Fate of the Furious, F9, which is coming out, I believe, sometime this year, and an action thriller called The Gray Man, which is coming out either this year or next year. Basically, if you've seen any of the later Fast and the Furious movies, you know that this guy knows what he's doing behind a camera. This is where he started from. This was and, one of his midway And, and he is really good at doing the big dramatic motion shots and that kind of thing. So, I so, mean, yeah, this, <clears throat> is, this is definitely... This was early on for him finding that, but this is, you can see the groundwork for where that was going. And also, the best cinematography scene in the entire film are the down shots when the wax museum is burning. So you can start seeing where he eventually got those huge, wide, captures every single frame of the action shots from. The guy knows what he's doing. This may have been one of his hit and miss finding himself pictures. But I feel like it's worth bringing up because we're dissecting everything in this damn movie, so why the hell not? Apparently. And then <laughs> if we go to the writing, the writers for this were the brothers, the Hayes brothers, Chad and Corey Hayes, who are the principal writers for the Conjuring series. They wrote Crowned and Dangerous, Shutter Speed, The Turning, like Twilight Zone episode, the a bunch of the Twilight Zone heaven. episodes, Baywatch Nights, an episode of Ghost Stories. These guys ha are really, really good at writing and really, really good at building a story and then turning it. And that's going to be important because this movie, I, I don't want to say that it's a rope because I don't feel like it's really a rope, but I want to say it's more Naughty's exploitation. They're you go into this kind of movie expecting a number of things to happen. And in the hit, that's what exploitation is in, in the world of cinema. It's what the term means. It's mm. when audience audience comes in and they're expecting X, Y, and Z, you make sure to give them X, Y, and Z, usually in the first 30 minutes. That's what film exploitation is. You know, black exploitation was white audiences expected a bunch of jive-talking, afro idiots walking around on screen so black exploitation films did exactly that like it's exploitation in cinema means a different thing than it does everywhere else in the world it's not necessarily a good thing it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just a formula so this movie is a reboot and it's a reboot in the mid noughties and it's very much in a genre a very much in a time where horror was very in your face Jokes were obvious. Things were done right in front of you. Did you get it? Did you get it? Like, that's really this era. 
like this era is more did you get it than really any era in horror in my opinion so in this movie you have those exploitative concepts okay we know that we're going into this we've got you know you, you know that you're going to have a bad boy you've got your token black character you've got pamela hilton which means you know that we need to do something you know some kind of sexual reference with pamela hilton because this was several years after her sex tape but let's face it we're now several decades after her sex tape and it's still something that's talked about so they do reference that in the film by the way oh they absolutely do and again that was really one of the did you get it did you get it moments but there's a moment where pamela hilton's character is filmed by a friend of theirs going down on her boyfriend in what is a non-consensual manner, but obviously Pamela Anders, uh, pa- Pamela Hilton consented to it because she's an actress in the film and had the script. So we're kind of playing with the idea that her sex tape was real, but also was given permission, but also wasn't, but also we'll never know the fucking truth. Like they, they, they do the did you get it with it is where I'm going with it. You know, you knew they, you knew that you needed to talk about Pamela, uh, Pamela Hilton sex tape. Too many Pamelas with sex tapes. You know that you needed to talk about Pamela Hilton sex tape. They talk about Pamela Hilton sex tape. There's an entire other sexy sequence with Pamela Hilton. Ironically, you never actually see her get naked in the movie. Probably was something that was a writer that was a necessity uh, for her to do the film. You know, they wanted to. They didn't. It's fine. But yeah, so. The first 20, 25 minutes of this movie are very much, you know, mid-2000s, 20s, doing mid-2000s, 20 things, and none of the characters really being likable, and all of the characters being, you know, assholes and doing shitty things to their friends. Like, that's really where this movie starts. With the mid-2000s soundtrack. With the mid-2000s soundtrack that is just like, you know, the soundtrack for this movie is going to be playing on Tia's Spotify for fucking forever at this point. It really is. So, all right. So the movie kind of goes wrong there in that it, it it centers around a bunch of characters that you don't really mind seeing die. Now, they kind of pull it out towards the end. The, the two that survive, you kind of start to care a little bit more about. You realize the kids are, quote, not that bad, unquote, as the movie goes along. It's okay. But, like, there's, there's just this heavy, weighty, like, exploitation-esque feel in the beginning of look you guys knew you wanted to see this and this and this okay we give you this and this and this all right now we're actually going to tell our story and i think that a lot of why this movie gets so bad reviews is i think a lot of people check out at the 20 25 minute mark and stop paying attention yeah one of the things i was mentioning to adam while we were screening this is basically it's a lot easier especially now if you're if you even wanted to go and revisit this to get caught up in this movie isn't that great during the first half first quarter first a third and just change it over to something else you're not you know most people aren't going to sit through and waste the time to wait for the movie to get good essentially so if you're just judging based off that particular viewpoint then essentially what it amounts to is oh i've seen you know enough to know this movie is not something i want to continue seeing i'm going to go ahead and write a bad review and we're going to go about our day because the aggregate Rotten Tomatoes score and the aggregate IMDb score are not great for this particular piece of cinema. 
I also think that it kind of went wrong because unintentionally, this is a classic Cinema Files wet dream of a film. And I don't know most... that it's I don't know that it's unintentionally. I think that they I think they did what they wanted to do and just nobody saw it and rather than rail against people not seeing it, they just went, All right, you fuckers didn't get it. That's fine. We know it was there. Mm-hmm. So you have this this kind of this kind of immovable force immovable force and irresistible object. You have one half of the film that is catering towards the people that are in 2005 going to go see a 2005 schlocky slasher flick, and the first half gives them that. And to most people who maybe think a little deeper, it's not going to be that much more engaging. It's not going to be that much more thought-provoking. They're going to write it off and be done with it. And then The Irresistible Force is the second half where every single moving part that we just spent an hour discussing starts moving the machine. So, all right. One thing that definitely went wrong in the movie, because we're not going to discuss a lot of things that went wrong. We're going to discuss, sadly, a lot of things that went right and just got missed. <laughs> Um, one of the things that went wrong was I had mentioned that the movie had a $40 million budget. Not all of that was intentional. They burnt down the set in the middle of making the movie about a house made entirely out of wax going up like a paint factory. Uh, the house made entirely of wax went up like a paint factory. It burned down the entire Warner brothers, Australia set. It was $7 million worth of damage done. That'll increase the budget a little bit. Won't it though? Won't it though? So, like, if you take out the $7 million of that, now it's rough. And I'm not saying that that is all of how that worked. But now you'd have a $33 million budget versus a $32 million box office gross. Still not successful, but at least now it's closer to track. But, yeah, it's very hard for a movie to make money and be successful after it burns itself down. So there's that. However... We're going to also, we had already mentioned that there is a, that there is a movie theater that is very important in this movie because it is the movie theater that on the marquee and in the studio or in, in the theater itself, um, is, you know, playing baby Jane. Okay. Tia has already mentioned this a couple other times, specifically when we did the, um, uh, the night of the comet review. Make a point to look at movie posters in cinemas when you are watching movies. Because one of two things is always true. A, they did nothing to the movie posters and they just used the ones that were up at the time the movie was filmed. And it'll just kind of let you know exactly when the movie was filmed. Or B, all of the movie posters that are up in the theater were placed there specifically on purpose and are on camera because they want you to get something about the movie from those movie posters. The movie posters that are in the theater that is playing What About Baby Jane are The Wild Bunch from 1969, a revisionist Western Sam Peckinpah film about a aging outlaw who's trying to find ways to fit in in an adapting world that is passing him by. Cough, cough, Moby Dick. Cough, cough, Moby Dick. Also, cough, cough, the killers in this movie. Mm-hmm. 
okay? The second one is Deliverance from 1972. Oh, God. Deliverance, which is a 1972 American thriller about a bunch of Yankees who get lost in the woods and run awry of, I don't want to use the term rednecks, but mountain men living in the mountains away from society. And the fact that... Boy, sorry, I had to do it. And the fact that they make up their own rules and everything around them is determined by them. And the third movie poster is 1981's Evil Dead. Why is that in there? I mean, that one really doesn't play into this movie at all, but I mean, it's it Evil was Dead, one of the... it's Sam Raimi. If I want to put a connection, I would say that it is because House of Wax, the original was very important to Sam Raimi's development as a storyteller and director and has influenced films he has made since. For example, Sam Raimi's written, directed, and produced superhero movie Darkman. The costuming of Darkman is a direct homage, which as we all know is a fancy French word, which means ripoff, a direct homage of the appearance of Professor Jared in House of Wax 1953. Also, Darkman is horribly scarred and needs to apply something to his face, which is, allows him to mimic other people's appearances. But he wears a mask designed to look like a person, which is exactly what Jared does in House of Wax 1953. So there is a bit of history between Sam Raimi and House of Wax, and there is a, the most famous of all Sam Raimi movie posters in the remake of House of Wax. They knew that. The people that made and wrote this movie knew this. They Absolutely. are horror fans. This is not accidental. Every single bit of this was done on purpose. Absolutely. Every single bit of this was done on purpose. So I will give you one more horror nod that you may have missed. Okay. Well, first off, the uh, of the two brothers, it's Bo and Vincent. Gee, the sculptor of the two is Vincent, the student of the master, which was their mother. The student of the the student artist of the master who was the disfigured one, by the way. Yeah, the student artist of the master. That character is named for the protagonist that the remake is based on. Did we also say that about Igor in House of Wax 1953? Yes, we did. Naming this character Vincent is a nod to Igor, going all the way back to 1933's Mystery of the Wax Museum. It's a reference to a reference to a reference. Yes. <laughs> not not accidental in any fucking way. Also, the last last touch that you might have missed the incredibly talented incredibly gifted physically deformed artist has to wear a mask to cover the right half of his face this is also a phantom of the opera remake oh god there's seven yeah and a nod to the original director of the 1953 who was missing an eye yep oh God, this movie has more layers. We're just peeling off, literally, just layers of wax. And there's more layers underneath it. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I guarantee you there's shit that I missed. 
I'm going to rewatch this movie, you know, six months from now and go, fuck, I didn't even find that one. Like, there is just so much in this movie. It is done so well. All of the actors in this went on to have larger careers, with the exception of Brian Holt, who was Brian Van Holt, who was kind of nearing the zenith of his career at the time this came out. But everyone else went on to work for decades after this movie, except for Pamela Hilton, who just went on to be Pamela Hilton. So she doesn't fucking need to. Um, You only work if you need the money. I mean, (laughs) right. And some would argue that she's still working because everything she does is a work. So, you know, she has been living a character for 40 years and we've just been buying into it. It's all there is to it. But everyone, the director, the producers, the writers, the cast, the cinematographer, the this the musical directive, like everyone on this went on to have brilliant roles doing amazing things. And yet this movie constantly gets overlooked. This movie isn't bad. No. This not movie at all. this movie is the movie that horror space is sleeping on. And if you ever watched this movie before, or if you have glossed past this movie and just didn't pay it any mind, mm-hmm. please, audience, I urge you to check this one out because it's a much was, better movie than you think it is. It was shocking, and that's the only word I can use for it, how, how out of nowhere you go into it, because I went into it thinking, okay, mid 2000s slasher movie was terribly reviewed has pamela hilton in it there's nothing that's going to be redeeming i'm going to watch this i'm going to take some notes i'm going to do my synopsis i'm going to blast it in the butt for 40 minutes and we're going to call it a day and now i'm sitting here an hour and 13 minutes after we started recording and i'm going oh my god this movie is amazing i feel the same sort of surprise and shock and awe with this film that I did with Of Unknown Origin, which if you've listened to that review, you know how my brain was in pieces on the floor for weeks. Um, yeah, head, head has been blown. Cut the cut the mic. Um, I have to go look at this again. Yeah. Because and, and everybody, wow. I also want you to know that before we actually hit the record button to actually start talking about this movie for an hour and 15 minutes, we talked about this movie for an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, the pre-show, uh, getting all, everything ready for you guys, was us just piecing together stuff to talk about in the podcast that we didn't uh, initially catch on our first viewing. Yeah, because this one is so in-depth, as you can tell by the fact that we're an hour and 15 minutes into it. And, you know, we're still talking about what went wrong, except that we haven't talked about anything going wrong. We needed to try to reformat this on the fly. We needed to audible how we were going to do this show because... This is not the movie fucking anyone thinks it is. No, God, no, 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 no. And not even, they did it, I almost wonder if it was masked as a typical aughts, mid-aughts, schlocky slasher film on purpose. Because all of the creators knew that they, the story they wanted to tell was a huge lake of references and nods and all kinds of interwoven deep cinema shit. I almost wonder if, like, the facade... Oh my god, the facade of it just being a schlocky 2005 is a mask like they do, like they wear in the... I just now realized the fucking first half of this movie is a mask for the second half of this movie. Yep. Holy shit. Vamp for a little bit, I gotta think about this. Okay, yeah, so <laughs> basically... <sighs> 
I want to I want to find figure out why this movie didn't work. What went wrong? Because that's what we're supposed to do at this point in the podcast. Why is this a don't watch this movie movie? The reason why this is a don't watch this movie movie is in 2005, myself included, everyone in the horror sphere didn't get it. Real cinemaphiles hated Paris Hilton because she was nothing but a nothing but a name and just trying to find ways to market herself. In 2005, all the way up through now, true cinemaphiles hate remakes and reboots because they never deliver on the promise of the original premise. So this movie had two strikes against it going in. And quite frankly, unless you're a millennial, in 2005, a movie about a bunch of millennials getting lost in the woods and bitching about not having cell service, no one's going to like you. Everyone's going to immediately check down. So before they got into the movie, this movie had three strikes against it. So everybody went, nope, we'll pass. And they checked out and stopped watching before the movie got good. Hell, we almost did. We were sitting there talking about, oh, this is going to be bad. This is like... We're like one in seven. Is it one in eight? I don't know if it's a one in eight, but this is definitely a one in six, one in seven material. There's no question about this. And then all of a sudden, the movie went, all right, did, did everybody else leave? The only people left here are the people that really want to see this? Okay, now we're going to start the movie. Don't tell anyone. And it did. And then from that point on, you're like, wait, this is, there's a murder mystery going on here. And what's with the weird town? And who were these guys? And the good brother was the disfigured one. And the disturbed brother was the one that wasn't disfigured. What about baby Jane? Like, oh my God, there's this movie. Out of nowhere, just blows itself out of the water. And not the way that you would normally expect a movie in 2005. Again, that whole, did you get it? Did you get it? They don't do that with their story. They don't do that with their reference. It's there. They run past the movie posters, but there's not a shot of, you know, there's not a wide angle face shot of Carly standing in front of the Wild Bunch movie poster for 60 seconds to make motherfucking sure you see that one. You can it's kind like of, you'll miss it. Yeah. You can kind of argue that they did it with the Marquis of Baby Jane, but. It's a scene where they're running past the movie theater on the street. So it's still, the action is drawn away from the marquee. It's still not digitality. So they do all of these things in the first 25 minutes of the movie that they don't do in the last hour. And arguably, I can't help but wonder if that might have been their intention because I remember seeing the original ads for this film. Yes, they throw in, you know, some of the, the dark lighted shots, the tight corridors, uh, like a, a knife and I think an axe here and there. Yes, they throw in slasher elements, but as far as the actual, to what I remember, as far as the actual ad was concerned, they did nothing to allude to the movie under the movie. Right. Not a damn thing. And... In, the lit in literally the last five minutes of the film, I'm sitting here going, okay, they did it, but I got an I gotcha. I got an I gotcha. The, the I gotcha was taken away. <laughs> the, the, the guy that is, you know, is maintaining the, um, the, the, the roadkill carcass. 
Yeah, Lester. Field. Lester. How come Lester took them up to the town? I mean, he knows where the town is. He doesn't say how recently he's since. been there, but you know he had to have been there within the last 10 fucking years because he's not that old. So he had to know what was going on. And why the fuck would he be going up there? My other two I gotchas that I was planning on doing was, okay, I hate it when, when movies do these whole, you know, lost town things because how the fuck are these two surviving if they don't have money and they don't have access to the outside world? How are they eating? How are they surviving? How is there power in the town? Well, A, there's power in the town because the entire town is rigged through a generator in the basement of their house. And they go through excessive means to show you that by having a scene where they're trying to figure out how to turn on lights and they're flipping switches and it's affecting everything inside the town. So literally mm -hmm. the entire town is run from the basement of the house and that's why it has power. It's not on the grid. No one's paying the electrical bill. There is no electrical bill. It's all out of a generator, which is gas-powered, and the gas is coming from all of the cars that they keep getting from all of the victims, so everything is tight. And Lester mentions that if the kill is fresh enough, he just brings it home because why waste the meat? And that's how the three brothers, not two, are being fed. So why did the country bumpkin character take them to a dead town? It's not a dead town. He lives there. He's family. The last scene is the uh, officer telling the investigator, there's not two brothers, there's three. And then you see Lester sitting on the back of his truck with the family dog, waving at our two survivors. I'm not saying he's a killer. He might not have known that, this, that his brothers were killing things. He might be a simpleton. But they tied up all of the loose ends which is the thing that I hate most in movies is when you go, but why would, why are we going to go with this? Well, because the movie needs to happen. You know, I hate that with a passion mm -hmm. and this movie doesn't do that. The plot makes sense. The questions are answered. It is very concise. It is tight storytelling. Fuck. I don't want to like this movie this much. <laughs> Where it has no business being, and they they show you scattered things like they show you like a graduation certificate from college for Vincent Sinclair, I believe is his last name. Yep. They show you newspaper clippings when they allude to their parents having been kind of run out because the dad was a practicing doctor and did some kind of not happy shit in the 60s that kind of lost up his medical license. And then the mother comes in and opens the wax museum, and the very, very beginning shot is of two brothers that we do not see and a mother and a father that we do not see where one has to be restrained and the other brother is sitting there eating his Cheerios, not really doing much of anything but behaving his own damn self. And they show cuts and bits and pieces as they explore the houses of newspaper clippings of accident here went wrong and local doctor shamed and Siamese twins having been cut. Oh, that's why the guy wears the thing on his head. And the cinematography on a whole could be a lot better. Some of the visuals that they put in this film are so striking, it's uncanny. For example, near the very end, when the wax museum is coming down, Carly is in a room and pushes a diorama of a crib with two babies who are attached to the head in front of the door because Vincent the brother that is still alive is coming after her with a knife and they show one take of a knife coming in at the door and slicing down and cutting the wax sculpture of the babies in half 
exactly where the two brothers who were born as Siamese twins were separated in, and it is so perfectly creepy. I am not let down by... <laughs> I was let down by how much this movie did not let me down. Did, did you also <laughs> notice that when the two brothers finally died and one laid on top of the other, they were reconnected on the head? Oh my god, at the same cutting point. The last yeah. thing we see as they're sinking is the one guy's good eye. Yeah. Oh my god, I miss... I, I knew they fell on each other, but I completely forgot they fell in that way. Yeah, Holy it's so artistic. shit. It's so artistic. <laughs> did you get that this was a story of siblings versus a story versus siblings in i knew the, that subconsciously not overtly but yes in the I, end I you have the two dominant brothers mm -hmm. stabbed and laying on the ground and mm -hmm. the two non-dominant siblings trying to help them back up on opposite sides of a room oh my god no that i, I did miss that during the action sequence yeah you oh, know the scene it's... I'm talking about now. You remember it. Yes. It yes. happened. Like, oh, and there is so much in this movie where it's like, this isn't really a, a filmmaking term, or maybe it is. I don't know. It's just one that I've always used. I like, I like the cut to use a phrase called visual poetry. Okay. Mm -hmm. Visual poetry is when you take a scene and the depth and meaning of the scene without words infers so much more about the context of the film as a whole. That is mm -hmm. what I mean when I say visual poetry, okay? There are so many moments of visual poetry in this movie that I need to go back and watch to find the ones I missed because they happened before I was looking. I guarantee you I missed a bunch. With the number I caught, I guarantee you I missed a bunch because this movie the visual poetry in this film is stunning. If you are, if you are a cinemaphile, if you are a horror aficionado, mm -hmm. the, the things that we talked about today, there are so many of these moments hidden in the movie where you're just like, wow, that's, that can't be accidental. They knew they were doing that when they did it. They did it on purpose. They wanted somebody to pick it up, and in 2005, everybody just had a hard-on for hating this movie. And I'm so even tight. going to say so coherent. I, th there's an ironic moment of visual poetry in the Pamela Hilton character. And like this one's kind of snarky. It's a little left-fieldy. It's not really horror, but I still think this was intentional. Her character arc bookends. The first scene she's in... And the last scene she's in, if you get snarky, are about her character being filmed, taking a hard shaft to the face. Ah, oh my God. Do we think that was, do we think that was intentional? Is that too on the nose for it not to be? I, I think because they all, because it's a callback to the, hey, remember she had a sex tape thing? I, I think, yeah, the reason why she got the kill she did and the kill sequence she did was that was totally intentional. That was totally some book ending. Her character starts and finishes with, you know, a joke about the actress playing the role. They even bring up, Bo even mentions later, what the hell are you doing with a camera? Like, as if to say, like, in case you missed this, that's the reason he was filming it. Right. <laughs> oh, holy like, shit. There is so much symmetry so much poetry in this movie again no right being as good as it 
textbook example of a film that has no right being as good as it is. Textbook example of a film that, myself included, everybody passed on or just wrote off and didn't realize what it was. And to their credit, the filmmakers went, okay, this one didn't land. Let's go make the next one. And everyone involved in this went on to make a next one. And all of their next ones hit. And why the fuck has nobody... I mean, there's a couple people on the internet that will have articles about, guys, this movie is really good, you need to go watch it. We're about to be one of them. But (laughs) almost everyone just didn't go... If there's a movie that has Alicia Cuthbert and Chad Michael Murray and Robert Richard and Jared Padalecki and directed by Jean Calais Serra and produced by Silver Zemeckis and Downey, but that movie's terrible. Do we maybe need to revisit that movie? Were and we wrong? I think, and I think I know exactly why this film got marketed as it did with kind of like hitting the what ended up being, quite frankly, genius filmmaking behind it. This was Colesteras first movie period, let yeah. alone first directorial outing. This was someone who they felt like, okay, we know this film is a psychological, I'm going to use this word, masterpiece. We also know it's likely not a lot of people are going to see it. Let's give it to this ambitious up-and-coming director and see what he can do with it. Right. And damn if this didn't springboard his entire fucking career. (laughs) Right? Oh, this movie's so good. Is there anything else you want to discuss that went wrong? Because, I mean, I feel like like we got to what went wrong and went, this is so good. And, like, we don't have anything that went wrong. Because the only thing that went wrong was the way the audience received the movie. I mean, cut and dry, carte blanche. The biggest thing that went wrong was the audience, not the filmmaking. And if you if you don't take the first half of the film as intentional, the, the whole lead up, the everybody's being a douchebag, the camping out scene, if you don't take that as intentionally masking the good part of this film as an intentional filmmaking choice, you can nitpick and say, okay, the movie kind of dragged on in the very beginning, which was the damn point. I see that now. But again, if people were going to complain about anything, the first time you watch this, the first bit may drag on a little bit, which is why I kind of hope you hear, listen to the podcast before you see it, because now you know to skip through all that because to, it gets be so fair, much better. I don't think most people are going to watch this movie unless they listen to the podcast first to see it, because no one's watching this movie. But this is it's a shame. And we can't do any. And the fact that we had to go through so much backstory to even get to how this movie works in the first place is a testament to its creation. Absolutely. This was made by horror cinemaphiles for horror cinemaphiles and just happened to have a young, current, hip cast in it. You know, kind of like House of Wax 1953, a movie for horror aficionados by horror aficionados that had a young, hip cast in it. It's just 70 years since then, so we forget that now. But everything is so tight and cohesive and... At this point, we're just going to be repeating ourselves because this film is so damn good. So we should just right. let's let's get to the reboot style scoring because there's a lot to talk about well, there. Too. First, who should watch this movie? Okay, aside, aside fan, from you should everyone, watch. aside from everyone who listens to this podcast, who should watch this movie? We went through all that already, which is why I missed it. My apologies. If you're a horror fan, you should see this movie. If you are a fan of subtle but incredible callback filmmaking in mm-hmm. horror you should watch this movie if you are a fan of reboots who take the 
idea that they're basing their film off of and managed to update it in such a way while still keeping enough credit and respect to the original source material, you will want to watch this movie. Yes. If you are a fan of incredibly well done, creepy, especially the the look of wax on film, which is kind of similar to oh, the look of glass on film. The, 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 you, the, the wax melting figures, like in the original House of Wax, it's creepy. Here, it's worse. And stepping it up a notch from just figures melting of wax to the entire down, building. The f- oh, it's... The flood of wax coming down the wax stairs. It's the a masterpiece. The footsteps people leave behind. The fact the- that you're running oh, from a killer, but your footsteps are being slowed because you're sinking into the ground. That is a classic nightmare sequence that they were able to reference in a physical form in a real-world setting where it could make sense. She had a living nightmare running from a killer that's chasing her, and she's being slowed down because her feet are sinking into the ground. If you're a fan of tight, cohesive storytelling in a film, you will not expect tight, cohesive storytelling. You will want to watch this movie. Uh, If you're a fan of Why Done It-style psychological horror, you need to check this one out. If you're a Pamela Hilton fan, if you're a Supernatural fan... This is the best thing she's ever damn done. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, If you're a Pamela Hilton fan, if you're a Supernatural fan, uh, if you're a fan of Naughty's era music... Yes. You know, if you're a new Metal fan, you gotta check this out just to listen to it. (laughs) If you're a fan of this podcast and think that we have any credibility whatsoever as film pundits, you need to check this movie out. Watch this movie while you're listening to the podcast and stop it at specific points to see what we reference. It's all there. And I mean, this podcast is going to be about as long as the movie, so that's a possibility. <laughs> All right. Oh, God. So, worth it. Worth it. It's a labor of love. We love you guys. And this was so worth it because there was so much to see. So, at DWGF, we use a rather unique screening system, lovingly known as the DWTF meter. On the DWTF meter, every film scores one because, let's face it, you shouldn't watch any of these films. The most important thing is one out of what? A one out of one is a lost classic that everyone needs to go see. A one out of two is a great movie that is horribly flawed in some way, all the way down to a one out of ten, which is a movie that needs to be removed from time and space. In addition, this month, we have to review the movie that the movie is built on and give that a score as well as give them a comparative score, the reboot to the original. Now, as we mentioned, this movie is like seven reboots in a row. We're not going to score them all. No. We're just going to score versus House of Wax. I will also score versus Taurus Trap because I have seen Taurus Trap. I don't know if Tia has. I have not, so that's all you. Okay, so you get a pass on that one. So Mm -hmm. you're going to score House of Wax to House of Wax. But House of Wax, 1953, House of Wax, 2005, for me, extra credit, Tourist Trap, 1979. Would you like to go first or fourth? (laughs) I will go ahead and go first because you have more to dissect, which may or may not influence your overall ranking as far as comparison. Fair enough. Um, So you go first and I will go third. Okay. Oh, God. So... House of Wax in 1953. Vincent Price, in my opinion, can do very little wrong, if anything. 
the visuals, the story, while being fundamentally different from the 2005 version, there's their own motivations, there's their own tone, there's Vincent Price being his lovably creepy-ass self, and with what they had at the time to work with, the visuals and the storytelling are as compelling, and they still hold up even watching it some 70, 80 years later. It is a solid Vincent Price film. I absolutely understand why it was the film that catapulted his career back into the spotlight, because at that point he had been waiting a little bit. For me, the House of Wax 1953 version is a very, very strong one out of four maybe one out of three. I'm going to go with one out of four because my one out of threes and higher tend to be movies that you must watch a second time. There's something that you missed. There's something that you want to see again, or it's just a damn good film and you want to play it through your brain a second time. House of Wax 1953, while being as good as it is, might not necessarily inspire a second viewing, but if it does, fantastic. It's worth it. But at the very least, you should see it once. Okay. One out of four for the 1953 version. Let's talk about the 2005 version. Divorced from the 1953 comparison. This movie, like Of Unknown Origin, I went in seeing one completely different film. Me and Adam were discussing a few things. I ended up seeing a completely different film the second half of the movie. And I am... At least this time we both caught it before you watched the entire film. That's true. To be fair, even if you weren't talking to me, I think you would have caught in this one. Like, when this started to get yeah. good, mm. I think you picked up that this was getting good. And uh, you didn't... My, my dialogue started changing. I was like, wait yeah, a second. Exactly. That just... That, yeah. So, I would have picked up on it, but it was just nice to have somebody bounce idea. Anyways, point being, not expecting. Did not see coming. First half, meh. Could have passed on it. I understand why it drags. I understand why people didn't go any further. Second half of the movie... Holy shit, I now have to rewatch this a second time because, my god, did I miss stuff. It is tight, it is tense, the visuals, especially with the melting wax, are so fucking good, I cannot stress that enough. The acting from everyone on screen is exactly what it needed to be, even from Pamela Hilton. And the story is so tight, and the visuals complement it so fucking well, it's like a symphony that you didn't expect to hear. Every single reference, every single piece that went to making this, everything that they pulled from what amounted to 50 years of horror cinema to make this movie, my god. So, as was the case with Of Unknown Origin, which is the only other movie that blew my mind the way this one did, I cannot, and part of me wants to, I cannot give this my first one out of one, but I absolutely can give it a one out of two. This film is insanely well-crafted. It absolutely has been overlooked, in my opinion now, unjustly. More horror fans should go and see this. This is a one out of two film. Now, how does it compare to the Vincent Price film? And not the other seven movies we could compare it to. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to give a rating, but I'm going to disclaim that rating by saying I almost want to abstain from giving one because the stories, while similar in places, are so fundamentally different and so fundamentally told as should be for the era they were created that I almost feel like I almost feel like comparing the two is not fair. 
I feel like if we look at House of Wax 2005, how does it compare to the 1953 House of Wax? They're so fundamentally different, and they're from such different times, and they were made for such different times. I am going to give a rating, but I'm going to disclaim that I don't think it's fair. So if you want to strike this portion, by all means, you have my blessing to do so. If I am being made to compare 2005 House of Wax to 1953 House of Wax, they are so different. They are so fundamentally telling different stories and using different methods of getting to those stories. There is very little to compare them to. I have to give it a one out of nine. Now, I'm going to add a giant disclaimer. That one out of nine is not a reflection on the films themselves. That is simply my opinion on comparing the reboot to the source material, one of the source materials. There's almost no comparison you can make, so the comparison between the two is... For me, like I said, a one out of nine. There's none to be made. Do not go into the 2005 film expecting a retelling of the 1953 version. You will be horrendously disappointed. Which I think a lot of people were. But if you go into the 2005 film expecting a story about a house of wax that is cogent, tight, inappropriate for a 2005 film, like I said, one out of two. You, you are not going to go wrong looking at this film. I can't say enough good about it. Okay, so, so House of Wax 1953, Tourist Trap 1979, House of Wax 2005. House of Wax 2003, in its day, was a one out of one film. You had to see it. As movies age, the relevancy will always wane. That's the nature of art. Things are important to creators who create new art that then becomes important to creators who create new art, your relevancy wanes over time. In 1953, this would have been a one out of one film. I think to a modern audience, if you are a Vincent Price or that era horror fan, it is a one out of three. If you are not, it might even only be a one out of five. Like the 50s was a weird time in cinema where it was part movie by modern standards, part opera things were done differently and those things are sometimes jarring to a modern audience there's a reason why i picked house of waxes to be in this month and it's because the first one was so important was so establishing and shaped so much of the cinemascope going forward from that film that i thought remaking it was a challenge house of wax 1953 i've got to give a one out of three I can understand why you would give it a one out of four or one out of five. I I feel it has to be, I could even understand why you would give it higher, but I feel it's a one out of three film. Taurus Trap. Taurus Trap didn't do anything terribly original. It, much like House of Wax, borrowed from four or five different films to make a film that nobody was fucking expecting and came out of nowhere. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an interesting film with an unusual premise, and if you like supernatural slashers, because there's not a lot of them, or supernatural thrillers, because there's, well, more than slashers, but still not a ton, it's worth checking out. Other than that, probably pass on it. I'd call it a one out of five. Mm-hmm. House of Wax 2005. Oh, I'm going to do something I'm going to regret, and I don't even care. Our definition for a one out of one movie in this podcast. I knew you were going to fucking do it. <laughs> our definition has been from the start, a lost classic that people missed 
and everyone needs to see. Is this a perfect movie? No. Is it a movie that everyone fucking slept on? Yeah. I mean, 26% positive reviews out of 158 reviews. Critics panned this movie. It was terrible. In a time where it should have been big, it wasn't. But much like the 1953, which in its day was a one out of one film that you had to go see, everyone involved in this movie has gone on to make phenomenal work. Guess what? They all made phenomenal work here too. This is not the outlier in their careers. It's just a missed slash misunderstood film. It's, I never would have picked House of Wax with Pamela Hilton was going to be my one out of one. But uh, it's going to be my one out of one. I knew you're, if I didn't do it, I knew you were going to. (laughs) Oh, so that's why you went with the two, just to bait me. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not perfect. But it's not formulaic, and it's got so many layers and so many references and so many callbacks without, did you get it, did you get it, bludgeoning you over the head with them. And everyone involved in this movie went on to important work. The writers, the producers, the director, the sound designer, the entire cast, everyone went on to do amazing things. They did amazing things here, too. Just nobody wants to admit it. I'll admit it. It's a great movie. Which film is the better of the films? Um, Comparing one to the other. How does House of Wax... How well does House of Wax reboot House of Wax? You're not watching this movie for that. If you went into this movie for that, you're not going to enjoy this movie. This is how we thought we were going to score this month, and this movie totally gets an N.A. on it. Much like Tia, I would say strike this from your score. Don't count it. How well does House of Wax reboot House of Wax? I mean, it modernizes the story in a way that is conceivable and makes sense. Wax museums don't exist anymore. They had to come up with a new way to do it. They did. They had to have a disfigured killer. They did. The revenge storyline is entirely removed. The premise for the original is entirely removed. One out of seven as mm-hmm. a reboot of the property. But this is a movie that is so good that it should not, much like the original House of Wax, this movie is so good that it should not be seen as a reboot and should stand on its own. This is House yes. of Wax. This is Scarface. This is that style of movie where it is a reboot that goes in such a different and divergent direction that it needs to be counted alone as a masterpiece of filmmaking that it is. Yeah. Like I said, to, to compare this to the original House of Wax almost is not fair to do. Yeah. To either film, honestly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a ton of scores thrown at you guys. I didn't and, expect Reboot Month to get so interesting, but my God. I know, right? And we're actually getting this done in under two hours by a snub, <laughs> but, you know, under two hours. So I'm impressed. The Patreon shout-outs for this episode will be Adrian Sandu and Ali Alcatraz. Congratulations, you guys are responsible for a good movie this month. If you would like to be part of the Patreon conversation, please go and check out patreon.com slash don'twatchthisfilm. There are $1, $5, $10, and $20 tiers, each with their own special perks and abilities. So make sure you check that out. (laughs) There's a tier for everyone and everyone for a tier, and a lot of additional content on there for the patrons. So please go and give it a holler. I know the one dollar doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, not all these movies we have in our collections, as we've discussed, and we need to rent these movies. And 
we need to take time away from other things to do this. So, you know, every support, even just a dollar, is very much appreciated. And um, you'd be surprised how much a dollar from everyone make from the, the the difference a dollar from everyone makes when everyone gives just a dollar. So thank you all to all of our patrons so very much. And yeah, that's that. Again, thank you guys so much for your support. It really does definitely make a difference. But we also understand that money does not grow on trees or in plants, and you can't dig it up in the backyard usually unless you're really really lucky. So. If you don't have a dollar, but you do have a social media of some kind, we have a fairly active Twitter over at Don't Watch This F. We talk about what's new, what's happening in the world of horror. We post the polls that our patrons can actually go ahead and vote on for what movie we see at the end of each month. And we're fairly engaged with our audience as much as we can be, trying to find new podcasts, new sources, new people to reach out to. So if you don't have a dollar, but you do have a Twitter handle, a like, a comment, a retweet, a follow boost engagement gets more ears on the podcast which ultimately helps us overall thank you guys so much for any support you can give us you are the reason that we do this and we love you for it and if you want to just send us a message you know decrying the positive scores that we gave this movie and that we're idiots and have no clue what we're talking about dwtf mailbag at gmail.com is the home of the podcast so feel free to send us any poison pen letters that you need to send over there yeah, if there's any film whatsoever that is going to get our credentials oh. as horror film reviewers struck in, this is going to be this the one it. that does but, that. I mean, this is a hill I'm going. This is a hill I'm willing to die on. I'm going to stand by this score. This is a really good movie that everybody, including me, including me, slept on in 2005. And I would like to point out because it has not been mentioned, and it's a tradition at this point, so I'm not going to mess with it. This is a higher score than you gave Psycho Gorman. I know. This is now our this is now our highest rated movie in twenty episodes of this podcast. I don't know how I 20. feel about that. I, I legitimately don't know how I feel about the fact that the highest rated movie in our cinematic horror film review podcast is House of Wax two thousand five. <laughs> I love it when oh. stuff like that happens, but you may have to think about yourself a little bit for a while. Yeah, if this is our last <laughs> podcast ever, you guys now know why. <laughs> oh, All right, so Reboots Month continues, and we talked about six movies in the making of this one. Oddly enough, there's the possibility we might have to do that next two, but for an entirely different reason. Not because six movies were made into one, but because one movie has been remade into six. So, although, you know, at least for part of it, the, the new metal thread will continue through. So that's good. That's very true. I'm excited for that and possibly only for that because, oh, God, you thought this episode ran long. This, the making of the movie we're going to be talking about next week is, oh, the layers go even deeper. Oh, my God. Yeah, but not in the good way that they did this week. Uh, tune in next week. It'll be entertaining, if nothing else. Thank you, dear listeners. Tune in next time. I have been W. Adam Clark. My name is Tia, and until we jump down the next reboot review rabbit hole, watch this.